wonder is what we do at, at night, right? We look at the sky, at the stars out there twinkling and, and wonder what else is out there. Who else might be out there? Big questions, of course. My my guest tonight, uh, Dr. Stephen Kane, uh, is hot on the trail of exo-Venuses, uh, Venus analogs, Venus 2.0, if you want to call it that, planets that are similar to our Venus but are orbiting other stars. He's part of the science team for a NASA mission to Venus. It's dubbed Da Vinci. Very exciting stuff. What is that mission? When does it happen? What's his role in it? We're going to get into that next, and then we'll be opening up, up the phone line. So hope you have some good questions for Dr. Kane. We'll be right back. Stephen, before we jump into Da Vinci, I was wondering, are you a, a science star in uh, your native Australia? I'm, I'm just thinking there you are as a boy in the outback looking up at the at the stars way out there and, and have come so far since then. Do, do, are you known for your work there? I, I am in my hometown uh, because <laughs> where I grew up in the small town of Tamworth, which is the country music capital, of Australia, uh, you know, many of my, uh, my my classmates just wanted to finish school so, so they could go work on the farm. And I was telling my career advisor, oh, actually, I want to be an astronomer. And they had never heard that before. <laughs> and the fact that I actually went and made it work is uh, something of a bit of a legend um, <laughs> where, I, where I grew up. But, you know, uh, I moved to the United States in, in the mid-90s. Uh, I don't get to go back as often as I would like. Uh, but whenever I do go back, I, I always make sure I, I go and visit around as much as I can and give give public presentations. Uh, well, I, I've only visited Australia once. I was there for 10 days in the Sydney area, but gosh, it was, it, I loved it. I had no idea that Australia had a country music capital. You learn something every, every night on this program. I uh, sometimes refer to it as the Nashville of Australia. <laughs> uh, so tell me about Da Vinci, this project, what it would do, what your role is, and what uh, it hopefully could learn. Yeah, so so everything that we've been saying so far, George, has all been leading up to this because uh, it's it's really about trying to understand the the deep atmosphere of Venus. Uh, what's the chemistry and the composition near the surface, and how will that help us to model the atmospheres of planets around other stars? And this is. Uh, this is just, as I've described, being a fundamental limitation in both our trying to understand for, for right here at home, what is the difference between Earth and Venus? What does this tell us about uh, planetary habitability, which is uh, my main area of re- research, trying to understand what makes a planet habitable and how does that change with time? Because Venus is a real uh, or perhaps the strongest example that we have of a planet that has gone through a dramatic change. And so in order to answer all of these questions, we have to go back. And as we previously discussed, uh, the, the Soviet program was sending a lot of landers to the surface, and there were some, uh, some NASA missions called Pioneer Venus, uh, that were going to the surface as well. But this, this was all happening primarily in the 70s and the early 80s. And then a lot of that stopped, uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is that once we'd learned how, the, the, how hostile the surface was, uh, then we, we, we 
stopped seeing the cost effectiveness of those missions, uh, for one thing, because these uh, missions only really returned an hour or two's worth of data, uh, but also the interest was very much in Mars, and particularly in uh, a potential future human presence on Mars. Uh, and so we just really stopped paying attention to Venus. We didn't understand at that time how important Venus was for the narrative of how planets evolve. Uh, and so uh, we've been pushing this uh, for uh, about the past 10 to 12 years. Like I mentioned, I, I went to the Venus community and said, this is the narrative we need. We need to really be pushing Venus as this is Earth's twin and we don't understand it. Uh, and so uh, fortunately, NASA agrees with this and so uh, it was in the mid-2021 when they announced uh, the selection of the next round of discovery missions. Uh, there were four that were being considered at the time. One was to Jupiter, one was to Neptune, and two were to Venus. And, you know, just playing the odds here, I was hoping that there's a 50-50 chance we'll get at least one Venus mission. But it turned out both were selected. Uh, so it was an extraordinary statement on the part of NASA to, to say that we hear you and we agree that Venus should be a priority. Uh, one of these missions is, as you mentioned, the Da Vinci mission. And the Da Vinci mission uh, will, is designed to answer a lot of these questions that we've been talking about. So it's a one meter diameter probe, three feet in diameter, and it is going to drop into the atmosphere of Venus. And uh, it is going to, during the initial phase of its journey to the surface, which will take about 45 minutes. Uh, and uh, during the initial phase, it will deploy a parachute which will take it gently down through the middle atmosphere where there's a lot of the interesting chemistry that's going on, potentially related to, to uh, the evidence that we've heard before about life in the middle atmosphere. But then at that point, it will release from the parachute and it will plummet down to the surface. Now, I say plummet. It's actually going to be slowed naturally by the thickness of the atmosphere. Because remember, the atmospheric pressure at the surface is about equivalent to a kilometer depth. And so you can imagine if you drop something like this in the, in the Earth's ocean, there's a natural drag effect that was, will actually slow it down towards uh, the surface. And it is designed for a soft landing. And so it is designed to make it all the way to the surface. And it, so it will measure the temperature, the pressure, the composition and the chemistry of the atmosphere better than we've ever done before, all the way from the top of the atmosphere down to the surface. That's exciting. So could it survive? You know, I've, I've seen these, this, these Mars rovers are just incredible. I mean, they're the, the one that's got a helicopter on it that's flown 50 missions. It's astonishing. It's some of these rovers are still going after years. And, yeah. um, Will, will this thing survive, and 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 can you get data back? I mean, through that thick atmosphere. Yeah, yeah So uh, this is one of the most extraordinary parts that I found since I rejoined the Venus community. Because uh, I think when a lot of people, when they think about going to the surface of Venus, a lot of people still remember the Soviet Venera program. And as I mentioned, those the those were really built strongly. I mean, when the uh, when it was realized 
by the Russians and the Americans the harsh conditions at, at the surface and realised that we needed to build these landers much more sturdy than we had even thought that we needed to. Uh, and so, for example, the, uh, some of the early Venera landers, were they had a hull rating to about 50 atmospheric pressures, which is only about half of what they actually needed. And so when you look at the later Veneras, they have they looked like they have a very Russian design. That's like they're almost built like a Russian tank. You know, these they're, they, they were really <laughs> designed to, to survive. Even so, they only lasted about two hours. And so the question is why? And the, the answer is, is that uh, one of the first things to go was the electronics. The electronics uh, back in the 70s and 80s were very vulnerable to the harsh conditions on Venus. And then if you lose the electronics, you can no longer transmit. So you're no longer transmitting data. Now, one of the major changes that's occurred in the decades since is that the heat and pressure tolerance of electronics is vastly superior to what it was previously. And so when people think about going to the surface of Venus, they think, well, why would we go there? We can only last a few hours. Well, uh, the designs that I've seen for various landers uh, uh, can now survive weeks and even months at the surface of Venus, which is extraordinary. Now, in terms of how long Da Vinci will last, it's actually uncertain how long Da Vinci will last at the surface, but the ability of it to transmit, transmit data is not so much limited by the, the lander itself, but just being able to uh, engage in t telemetry with the uh, with the spacecraft which is de deploying the probe, because the way in which this is going to work is that it's actually going to be a series of flybys of Venus. It's not going to be an orbiter, unfortunately, uh, that is going to just be continuously receiving data from the surface and transmitting it back to Earth. Uh, the flyby is going to is going to go past Venus. It's going to deploy the probe, and whilst ever the probe has a line of sight to the flyby spacecraft, then it will be able to transmit data. Oh. And we estimate that to be between uh, 15 to 20 minutes, which isn't as long as I would like. Because uh, my hope is that we can rectify that. Uh, and that there are various other missions which are also planned. I mentioned there were two NASA missions which were selected. The other one is Veritas, which is going to be in orbiter. But it's uncertain yet if that is going to be in place in orbit around Venus at the time when the Da Vinci probe is released to the surface. Uh, but if it is, then I would love to be able to use Veritas as a relay station to transmit more data from the surface. Yeah. But go, going back to what you said about Mars, yes, the, those, um, those spacecraft uh, and, and the rovers, it's just extraordinary how long that they can, that, that they can survive. And one of the uh, counterintuitive issues with surviving on the surface of Venus, as well as the harsh conditions, is just power. Because those, uh, those uh, rovers, they have solar panels. And you think, well, we could have solar panels on the surface of Venus because, after all, Venus receives twice the amount of energy from the sun than the Earth does. However, the trouble is that the Venus atmosphere is so thick, only about 3% of the light at the top of the atmosphere reaches the surface. So it means that you need another solution, possibly a nuclear 
uh, powered rover or something like that, because there are plans, believe it or not, for a rover on the surface of Venus. Oh, that's exciting. I remember that 2018 mission uh, that flyby, they were able to peer down through the what they thought was going to be this gigantic impenetrable cloud cover, but it was able to look down pretty far, wasn't it? Yes, there's been a couple of opportunities uh, for us to actually see down through the Venetian atmosphere. And that's because although uh, when we look at Venus, and, you know, looking at Venus from Earth is always difficult. I, you know, I always tell, uh, particularly my students who, who don't necessarily think a lot about what's up in the night sky, but I always tell them, whether you know it or not, you have seen Venus. It is the third brightest object in the sky, only after the sun and the moon. But it's uh, the, one of the ways in which you know it's Venus is because it's near the horizon all the time. And that's because Venus is closer to the sun than the Earth. You can only see it closer to the horizon. A problem there is it means that if we want to observe Venus from the surface of the Earth, we have to look through a lot of the Earth's atmosphere. And the Earth's atmosphere is actually very, very absorbent at the kind of of radiation that we would receive from the surface of Venus. It means that if you want to just look through the clouds of Venus and see the surface, you have to be near Venus. And so we've had a few opportunities, like the one you mentioned, where a spacecraft flies by, and it just so happens it's looking at the right wavelengths of the radiation that it can see the, the heat from the surface coming up through the clouds, through these very narrow windows in, in, in the clouds. And so we've had a few opportunities like that. Wow. Let's take a call or two. Uh, east of the Rockies, Blake in Tyler, Texas. Hi, Blake. You're almost Stephen Kane. Thank you for having me. Hey, I appreciate that uh, information. Venus seems like it has a lot of greenhouse gases, and I'm wondering if you see anything there uh, in the future where it could be utilized to terraform an atmosphere on Mars via like a transport pl platform and, you know, uh, a towed train of bladder sacks or something to deliver into the Martian uh, gravity and just drop. Um, uh, yes, Stephen, uh, maybe the question is uh, terraforming Mars, the creating an atmosphere that's been kicked around. What's your take on that? Yeah, thank you, Blake. That's a really interesting question. Uh, and it's something that I've thought about a lot because, as I mentioned, I think about what Venus means for Earth's future and what we can do about Mars as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting aspects to how you would terraform Mars. Uh, one, how you would get the atmosphere there in the first place. Uh, some people may be aware that, uh, that Elon Musk has proposed that we actually deliver nuclear weapons to the polar regions of, of Mars, which is, consists largely of, of uh, frozen carbon dioxide, dry ice, as we call it, um, and send, use that to send it up into the atmosphere. Or if we could somehow, as Blake suggested, capture the carbon dioxide from Venus and, and somehow transport that to Mars, uh, which is going to be a very, very difficult process, because ideally what you want to do is in order to make that carbon dioxide transportable, you really need to freeze it. So, and there's ideas about how to do that on Venus itself by putting the starshade in front of, of Venus, blocking the sunlight from Venus to actually 
cause the temperature to drop and for the CO2 to rain out of the atmosphere. Then you could capture that CO2 once it's frozen and then take that to Mars. Now, however you do this, you start to run into a problem that I mentioned earlier, which is that Mars is small. And so even if you have or you're able to build a substantial atmosphere on Mars, and as Blake mentioned, carbon dioxide is a, is a great greenhouse gas, and so it might help to warm the surface. But you have to be able to maintain the atmosphere. Mm. And maintaining the atmosphere is, is going to be as big of a challenge now as it ever was for Mars, because it turns out that our sun becomes more luminous with time. Its brightness is increasing with time, but because the brightness of the sun now is 30% greater than it was when the solar system formed. And so this is a sustainability issue where having an atmosphere for Mars, uh, you're going to have to continually replenish it. And so I think that's one of the major challenges we face there. Thanks for that call. We've got a lot of interesting callers uh, on the line. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, you know, I know that looking at your resume, you teach, uh, as you said, uh, planetary habitability. And, and that, that seems to be, you might get perilously close to forbidden territory in, in uh, talking about changes to our planet and, and what might be causing it. Uh, people, a lot of people here don't want to hear it. You know, uh, you know, changes have happened to other planets, obviously, without people being there. Um, but, but you probably, I, I, it would seem like you're involved in those kind of discussions about what's happening on our planet and what might be the cause. Yes. Uh, yeah, planets have changed a lot through time. Uh, there are uh, natural uh, processes at work there. There's also biological processes, particularly in the case of, of the Earth. The uh, biological evolution has had a profound effect on the, the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, but there is also industrial processes right. uh, which can contribute to this. And so depending on which planet you're talking about, which stage of its history, yeah. you can start to see which are the dominant effects. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Kane. We'll take some calls when we come back. We have one segment remaining with my guest, Dr. Stephen Kane. As as many of you out there listening tonight know, you know, we kind of whipsawed on the question of life in our solar system. At different times in our history, we humans have used to naively kind of think that it was all over the place, that Mars had people and Venus had people and people on the moon. And then, you know, science and reality set in as we learn more about how inhospitable those places are. The chances of life there seem pretty remote. And then we started learning about ice and um, possibility of liquid water scattered through our solar system and some of these moons of the larger planets like Jupiter, uh, which will be the targets of future missions by NASA, uh, hopefully, to look for possible life deep down uh, under the ice. Uh, it's pretty exciting. And you have to wonder, what would it be like for people like Dr. Kane the next day at work when that announcement comes? I'm going to ask him that before we go back to the phones. We'll be right back and continue our conversation in our final segment of Coast to Coast AM. Stephen, uh, during that break there, I was mentioning about how we humans have whipsawed back and forth, whether we think there's life in our solar system, could there be, and you know, look pretty bleak for a long time, and that sort of has changed. There's a possibility that maybe there might be something out there. You know, how big of a deal would it be for someone in your field, an announcement that life has been discovered, it does or did exist, 
in our solar system, or even maybe somewhere else, but it's, let's say it's Mars, it's fossils of tiny microscopic life forms that existed a million years ago. What's that uh, day in the office going to be like the morning after that news break? <laughs> well, that's, that, that's very difficult to describe how extraordinary that would be. That would be an, an absolutely amazing announcement. And as you may recall, uh, it was back in the late 90s that such an announcement was indeed made. Yeah. Uh, the, that announcement was regarding a meteorite uh, that, that is from Mars called the Allen Hills meteorite. Uh, but uh, there was claims that there was some um, fossilized remains of biological activity, which turned out to be spurious, but that the quest goes on. And uh, I will say that one of the uh, big questions for if we do find life in our solar system, either evidence of past life or present life, you mentioned the moons of, uh, of Jupiter, uh, the, the Galilean moons, particularly Europa, is thought to have a subsurface ocean. There's a small moon of Saturn called Enceladus, which also is thought to have a subsurface ocean. You know, whenever people think about oceans of liquid water, they tend to associate life with it. Uh, it and it's not clear yet what other conditions are needed for life, whether if you just have the right ingredients, then you'll spontaneously form life. But But if we do find... Uh, a present or past ecosystem that exists elsewhere in the solar system, the question will, will be, did that form independently of life, uh, life on Earth, or was it the result of life on Earth, or is life on Earth the result of that? In other yeah. words, this yeah. is what we call panspermia, where you could have had life form in one location and then travel to a different location, which, unbelievable as it may sound, is possible. So, for example, there has been a simulation uh, which has been performed of the impact on the Earth 66 million years ago, the one that's attributed to bringing the Mesozoic era to an end and uh, largely resulted in the death of the dinosaurs, uh, that that material that was ejected into space probably ended up all throughout the solar system, including Europa. And so uh, it'll, it'll be a question of, did it form independently? Did it spread throughout the solar system? Now, if we find life in another planetary system that is far from us, then we could be assured that that life did form independently. So I think that would be the big difference between those two kinds of discoveries, whether we find it here in our solar system or elsewhere. And, and a discovery of, say, microscopic life, some kind of plant or something would be much different from, say, intelligent life. And I, I was going to ask you this. I promise we'll go to the phones next. But is the James Webb, I mean, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing uh, technological development. Is it capable of searching for techno-signatures? Yeah, and that's something that a lot of people have been thinking about. But it's something which has evolved just recently because – we, we all remember, particularly back in the mid-90s, there was a lot of hype surrounding SETI. And this was helped a lot by the Jodie Foster movie Contact. And there was uh, a, a lot of ways in which the public could engage in that. There was a thing called SETI at home for a while where they could actually use people's computers to process the vast amount of data that they, that they have. But there hasn't been a lot of support from government agencies, which was also more or less 
depicted in the movie Contact uh, in order to support this kind of research. That has changed, actually, over the past five years in particular, that NASA is now supporting the search for techno signatures. Uh, and uh, there has been numerous studies which have been performed regarding the capabilities of James Webb to do this kind of work, including, for example, the search for uh, night lights on the surface of the planet. So you can imagine if we were an alien civilization and we were looking at the Earth, would we be able to detect the difference between the day side of the Earth and the night side in terms of the city lights, which are on the surface, uh, uh, on the night side of the surface, and to be able to distinguish those kinds of signatures. These are the sorts of things that people are thinking about. I will say that the big difference between a biosignature, meaning just uh, the output from biological activity, and a technosignature is that for a technosignature, you start to go down the slippery slope of trying to understand the cultural and technological motivations and development of a species which is undoubtedly tens of thousands of years more advanced than us. And that's extremely difficult to project. Good answer. Uh, West of the Rockies, uh, Aoral in Placer County, California. Hi, you're on with Dr. Stephen Kane. Gone? Okay. Wildcard line, Sean in Stockton, California. I know people there. Hi, Sean. Uh, good evening. Um, understanding evolution represents uh, billions of years. So are these planets fixed in their positions, or could they have been at an ideal distance from the sun as Earth is now to allow the conditions for life? And also, what causes the planets to spin? Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Those are really good questions. Uh, So it turns out that if you're talking about a distance a planet is from its star, then those distances can change. They mostly change very early on during the formation uh, of the system. So, for example, for our solar system, the locations of particular Jupiter and Saturn have changed enormously, and it's thought that actually the movement of Jupiter resulted in Mars being as small as it is and the prevention of the formation of an additional planet where the asteroid belt now is. That is the result of planets moving around. So we know that that happens because there's vast amounts of evidence that it's happened right right here. Uh, and so we think that that Uh, can happen in other planetary systems as well. But, as I said, usually that happens during the formation process. And so by the time that life is forming on the surface, the planets have mostly settled down into uh, into their present locations. In terms of the spin of planets, that's a really important topic when I think about planetary habitability, because I mentioned earlier that a big big difference between Venus and Earth is that Venus barely spins at all, whereas Earth actually spins extremely rapidly. I don't think we appreciate how rapid Earth's rotation rate is. It's very, very fast. And so what effect does that have on the development of life and climate? And that's actually a big part uh, of why we think that Venus could have had surface liquid water oceans in the past. I didn't get to that point earlier, but actually, if you could imagine that instead of the Earth spinning very rapidly, 
that you have it be a slow rotator or just have one side permanently facing the sun, then what happens if you have surface liquid water oceans, you form a lot of clouds on the day side of the planet because of the evaporation, which cools the planet down. And that's exactly what Venus would have needed in order to remain habitable for a long period of time. That's one of the mechanisms through which it could work. Why do these planets have enormously different rotation rates? We're not really sure. Uh, but we think that for ex in the case of the Earth, it could have been because of the impact which resulted in the formation of the moon. That was a very, very important uh, moment in Earth's history and could have had a profound effect on the way in which the Earth spins. Yeah, no moon, no Earth, no life on Earth, right? Or something close to that? Well, so that's, a, that's an interesting point about when we start to get anthropic about the Earth and we look at all the features of the Earth such as its rotation rate, such as its distance from the sun, its size, and the fact that we have a substantial moon. We look at each of these features and we think, are we here because of that feature? Now, when it comes to the moon, the, the feeling is, is that the moon uh, is, uh, has played a role in the development of life on Earth because, for example, the tides from the moon produce tidal pools where you can get concentrations of organic chemistry, which will, will accelerate the development of life on Earth. So that means that without the moon, you may still have formed life on the Earth. It just may have taken longer. All right, we go to Vic in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Vic, you're on with Dr. Stephen Kane. Great, great show, George, again, and Dr. Kane, I love your topic. I was wondering, are, are you listening? Yeah. We can hear you. Oh, anyway, I was wondering, how come the Webb Telescope hasn't looked at our nearest sun star system next to our own, which is uh, Alpha Centauri? And within 100 light years of our own sun, there are probably 60 or 70 stars that are very similar to our own sun. And uh, considering the dynamics of how our solar system was formed, how come the Webb Telescope isn't looking for uh, rocky planets or planetary systems similar to Earth in these star systems that are near us. And uh, Betty Hill, if you remember, said that Zeta Reticuli, which is 39 light years away from Earth, was the uh, point of origin of her uh, abductors or visitors. So why haven't we trained the Webb telescope on Zeta Reticuli. I know these are a lot of questions, but I was just hoping maybe we can have some answers as to why we aren't using the Webb telescope in our nearby uh, in, uh, locality. Systems. Okay. Yeah, th thank you, Vic. Uh, uh, great question, because you would think that we'd look at the closest stars first, wouldn't you? Um, uh, the, the thing to remember about the James Webb Space Telescope is that it is a general purpose uh, instrument, meaning that it doesn't just look at planets. Um, uh, George also mentioned earlier that it's been uh, looking at black holes and things like that. It's doing an extraordinary amount of science. When it comes to looking at planets around other stars, it's primarily designed uh, to uh, measure the atmospheric composition of planets for planets which uh, transit their stars. They pass 
between us and the star. And it just turns out that there aren't many stars or planets orbiting stars nearby where we have that perfect alignment that allows us to do that. And so that's why the James Webb is primarily looking at planets that transit their stars so we can measure their atmospheres, and those tend to be further away. The way to think about this, though, Vic, is that the James Webb is the first stage in a series of missions. The kind of mission that you're talking about that will indeed look at the closest stars uh, and look be able to directly detect these planets, that is coming. And that has uh, been recommended uh, by NASA for launch probably in the mid to late 30s, and that is called the Habitable Worlds Observatory. And so uh, that will be able to directly image planets orbiting the nearest stars. So James Webb is just a first step to really get a handle on what the atmospheres may be like on planets which are further away. Thanks, Vic. Boy, I'll bet it's a it's a chore to try to book time on the James Webb because so many people and scientists want to use it. Uh, yeah, I'd like to have the James Webb for three or four days. <laughs> that might be tough to do. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, I, it has certainly been very, very busy. It's been very oversubscribed, uh, but it's been very exciting to work with it. Try to get one more call in. Myad in New York. Hi, young lady. Uh, good evening. Good morning. Uh, Excellent program. Um, I'm reading about the hydrothermal uh, vents um, from an essay, The Moonlit Path, Reflections on the Dark Feminine as a paradox in that is similar to what you described um, mid-ocean, the continental plates, 800 and some degrees Fahrenheit, 8,600, 8, and possibly interplanetary comets and media bringing on the prolific flora and fauna. So I like your thoughts about those uh, thermal um, uh, hydro jets uh, down at the bottom of the ocean, and might there be some parallel to the conditions you described? Um, Thank, thanks for that been, call. Yeah. Thanks for the call. We got about a minute left, Stephen. I guess the uh, point being that life in some form exists in some pretty extremely hostile environments, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is this is something that we think about a lot, and and I I will say that. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned that we tend to be anthropic when we think about life. Just we, we can't help it a lot of the time, but we can't box ourselves in. We have to think of the alternatives for, for life. And one of these is, as Mara mentioned, the, the hydrothermal vent in the deep ocean. These are what we call extremophiles, the organisms that enjoy these kinds of environments. We think about these not so much in the context of Venus, but certainly in the context of Europa, or Enceladus, these icy moons that may have subsurface oceans, because that is a great source of energy, which is why life likes the hydrothermal vents, because if they're not getting it from the sun, then they need to get it from somewhere, and hydrothermal vents are a great source for that. Dr. Stephen Kane, boy, I would imagine it's a lot of fun to take your classes, uh, one of your classes. Uh, you're welcome here anytime. Hope you'll keep us in the loop. If you've got some cool stuff you want to tell the world about, you're welcome here. Thank you, George. Happy to talk anytime. All right. Uh, thanks again. And thanks to my earlier guest, uh, Dr. Travis Taylor, and to my colleagues there at Premier at Coast to Coast, uh, Donna Walker and Michael Cosio. 
Lex Lonehood, Dan Galani, Chris Boros, Lisa Lyon, Tom Danheiser, and, of course, George Norrie. I'm George Knapp. I'll be back next Sunday night. Good night, everyone.